Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 102, Monongahela. In our last episode, we looked at the aftermath of the disaster at Fort Necessity. Word raced across the Atlantic to London, where events were set in motion. Against the advice of Newcastle, a plan by Cumberland was adopted with the support of Halifax. It was a ridiculous plan where the commander-in-chief, Braddock, was supposed to oversee four simultaneous campaigns across the North American continent. Braddock was to campaign in Ohio, then link up with his second-in-command, William Shirley, the governor of Massachusetts, whose actions were severely annoying James Delancey, the lieutenant governor of New York. William Johnson was to lead a third expedition with support from the Mohawks, and another expedition was to be taken against the French on the Nova Scotia Isthmus from Boston. It was expensive, relied on non-existent supply routes, and the obedience of independently-minded governors. Today, we'll have a look at just how this turned out. After meeting with the governors in Virginia, Braddock left to catch up to his troops, which he found near Fredericktown in Maryland, on April 22nd, 1755. He used wagons which were supplied by Pennsylvania through the influence of the Deputy Postmaster General for the Colonies, our old friend Benjamin Franklin, and Washington volunteered to join Braddock's force. He had been offered the command of the Virginia Provincials, but you'll recall that after Fort Necessity, Washington had written to Dinwiddie, requesting to be placed under the command of an experienced officer. He wanted to learn, rather than have his own command. By volunteering to join the force, he was a gentleman who would not be paid, but would serve as a junior officer. However, he joined the force with the recommendation of Dinwiddie, and he had better knowledge of the Ohio country than any other Virginian gentleman. Therefore, Braddock made him his aide-de-camp. Wills Creek and Fort Cumberland were hives of activity for several weeks while Braddock prepared his campaign, but he made the critical mistake of neglecting an Indian delegation, barely concealing how little he regarded them, both as allies and enemies. The Indians from the Ohio were willing to support the British in removing the French, provided that the British not assert direct control of the region. Braddock expected Iroquois support, even though Johnson had yet to speak with them. Braddock began his march and made his way through the same horrible terrain that Washington had marched through the previous year. By July 9th, he was within 10 miles of Fort Duquesne. The force was in good spirits, hoping to reach the fort the following day. All the while, they were being watched by Contracur, the commander at Fort Duquesne. Contracur was a smart man who understood the situation accurately. His fort was well maintained, but could only hold 200 of the 1,600 men under his command. This did not make for a defensible position. Likewise, a large portion of his force was comprised of Indian allies, who were not inclined to fight to defend the fort, but instead wanted to fight against enemies. 
they would also probably leave once the fort was lost, rather than being committed to the cause. Therefore, he knew his best course of action was to take the offensive. Half of the French force, 637 Indians, 146 Canadian militiamen, 72 colonial regulars and 36 officers set off at 9 in the morning to meet the English. The French were spotted at 1 in the afternoon, and they seemed more surprised than the English who were on the watch for potential ambushes. The English immediately started firing at the French, and despite them being 200 yards away, they managed to kill the commander. The regulars and the militiamen panicked without their commander, but the Indians took positions behind cover and opened fire on the British advanced guard, which started to fall back. The British force was inside a forest, but the trees were not particularly dense. It was ideal hunting terrain for an Indian marksman. The British fell back on their training, forming into companies, which only really succeeded in bringing them closer together and making them easier targets. The officers, trying to organise their men by riding about on horses, shouting, were the easiest targets of all. Within ten minutes, fifteen of the eighteen officers in the advance guard, under the overall command of Thomas Gage, were dead. Order was breaking down. An eyewitness reported, quote, the French and Indians crept about in small parties, so that the fire was quite round us, and in all the time I never saw one, nor could I, on inquiry, find anyone who saw ten together. End quote. The British troops stuck to their training and their instincts, which would have been commendable if it weren't completely useless. They formed platoons which only succeeded in firing at each other. The Americans in the army, who had not had years of service, immediately broke and fled. Many hid behind trees where they were killed by the British volleys. This chaos continued for three hours, until the only person remaining composed, Braddock himself, was hit by a musket ball and was knocked out of the saddle. Then they routed, fearing a massacre. The Indians, who wanted trophies to prove their skills as warriors, scalped the wounded and dead left on the battlefield. Others were enslaved. Washington would recall, years later, how the scene haunted him. Quote, The dead, the dying, the groans, lamentation, and cries along the road of the wounded for help were enough to pierce a heart of adamant. The gloom and horror was not a little increased by the impervious darkness occasioned by the close shade of the thick woods. End quote. After two days of flight, they managed to reach the second division of the army. It took another five days to cover the 75 miles to Fort Cumberland. Braddock died from his wounds after a few days, perhaps a mile from the location of Fort Necessity. The Battle of Monongahela was a debacle for the British. The French and Indians suffered 23 casualties and 16 were seriously wounded. In contrast, nearly 500 British died, and a similar number were wounded. The reasons for the defeat were of immense interest to the Americans of the age, 
who reached the conclusion that only Americans could fight in the backlands, as the Europeans mindlessly obeyed a tactical system designed for a different world. Braddock was clearly at fault. The man who was by Braddock's side the whole way, Washington, bemoaned the criticisms of Braddock, blaming the circumstances. Time would pass, and Braddock would become a vilified figure in the American conscience. It's not that surprising. Their only experience of him was ignoring colonial interests, advice, and Indian support, while marching into a massacre. However, Washington never criticised him. However, it seems as though Washington completely missed the lesson of Monogahela, that support from the Indians would be critical in the coming conflict. The French understood this completely. That said, if you look at the big picture, the French were arguably in the weaker position. When the force mustered at Fort Cumberland on July 25th, almost 2,000 troops were there. Meanwhile, most of the Indians on the French side had returned home with their trophies, while only a few hundred troops were left to guard Fort Duquesne. But this wasn't clear at the time. Had you tried to tell this to your average American, they would have laughed in your face. As word of the disaster spread, so did chaos along the American frontier. There were very few soldiers available along the frontier, and it largely collapsed. Raids frequently took place as colonies scrambled to raise new forces. Washington was made commander of a new force raised in Virginia to protect the area. Meanwhile, the Indians of the Ohio joined the French, having no other option. Word reached Shirley in New York by early August. Shirley was trying to organise his planned attack on Fort Niagara, and was rather frustrated as it had already fallen weeks behind schedule. He started making desperate plays, such as trying to get Mohawk scouts to join his campaign, which had the effect of annoying both the Mohawks and William Johnson, who was supposed to be recruiting them for his own campaign. The disaster was a blow for Shirley, both for the war effort and because his son was there and was killed in the chaos. The bad news continued to arrive, as word came that the British ships in the Gulf of St. Lawrence had failed to prevent reinforcements from France arriving. This was all mixed in with a lack of money, and Shirley felt he had no choice but to abandon the campaign. He would focus on strengthening his base, Fort Oswego, and planning an assault for spring 1756. The only positive was that the campaign in Nova Scotia went well, although the British were nervous about the population, which they knew the French had infiltrated, and who refused to swear loyalty to the king. In consequence, the Acadian population, perhaps 5,400 people, was forcibly removed. This action remains controversial to this day, with some, although not myself, referring to the incident as being remarkably similar to ethnic cleansing. The other campaign, that of William Johnson and the Mohawks, which actually sounds like a great band name, against Fort St. Frederick, had been delayed like that of Shirley's. By late August, they were still based at Fort Edward on the Hudson, 
although Williams still planned on attacking. The French were aware of this and tried to do a repeat of Monogahela by preemptively attacking. They made their way to within a couple miles of Fort Edward when the Mohawks informed Johnson of their presence on the evening of September 7th, and they marched out the next morning to meet the French. The French commander blocked the road with his grenadiers, while the Canadians and Indians would be hidden further ahead in the trees. In a repeat of Monongahela, the British walked straight into a trap, and a number of the British were killed, but here things differed. At Monongahela, the British regulars had insisted on holding formation and were massacred, but here the British did the sensible thing and ran for their lives. Those that remained at the camp heard the gunshots and immediately started preparing for an attack, so they were ready when the expeditionary force returned. The French moved to attack the fort, but they were met with British grape shots. Podcast footnote, grape shots is where small items and bullets are placed into a cannon and fired instead of a cannonball. It is extremely effective against infantry at close quarters. End podcast footnote. The grape shot did tremendous damage to the French, who were largely on their own, as their Kornawaga allies had lost their leader and did not join the attack, and they pulled back. The day was getting late, so the British didn't pursue the French who were fleeing to Fort St. Frederick. A group of perhaps 400 French, Indian and Canadian troops tried to regroup when they were met by 200 New Hampshire provincials who heard the gunfire and came to support. It was now dusk and the attack was extremely damaging to the French. This was the Battle of Lake George. Even though the damage done stopped the British launching their attack on Fort St. Frederick, and the losses on both sides were quite even, it was a British victory as it secured British control of the local area and allowed the British to found Fort William Henry on the south side of Lake George. Now a match for the French-controlled Fort Carillion on the north side. It was a nice note for the campaigns of 1755 to end on for the British, but it couldn't be denied that the whole year had been a disaster. If you remember Newcastle's very delicate plan before Cumberland got his hands on it, this was quite a contrast. Britain had stumbled its way into being viewed as the aggressor by the international community while gaining nothing, losing control of the border in the middle colonies and allowing the French to reinforce Canada. Newcastle was having great difficulty, both domestically and internationally, as his government seemed on the verge of collapse. We'll deal with all of that next time, as well as introduce one of the great figures of British history. Pitt the Elder. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.